Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 97, and it's a continuation of the subset of episodes that we began in episode 96 on the topic of multiple caskets at Bethesda and how the presence of multiple caskets and the arrival of the president at Bethesda in a different casket, different than the one he was placed in at Parkland, might have been de facto evidence that alterations to the president's body actually occurred in order to obscure the autopsy results. We have come at this topic from several different perspectives already in the autopsy series, but these particular episodes focus on the perspectives that Doug Horn put forth. Horn was the chief military analyst for the Assassination Records Review Board, and he was extensively involved in the ARRB activities associated with the autopsy. In episode 96, you hear Horn's cogent summation of the evidence and testimony related to the use of two caskets. Some of the testimony and evidence was introduced previously in other episodes, already heard, but as we said in episode 96, that testimony was strewn across the landscape. Today, we will cover the timeline that night at Bethesda as Horn sees it, and as he documented verbatim, in his classic set of books entitled Inside the Assassination Records Review Board. Who knows, we might even have time to talk about the ultimate question of who might have altered the body if it occurred and where that happened and what they did and specifically what they might have been trying to accomplish. All from Horn's perspective. And to give credit where credit is due, much of the timeline that Horn sets forth in his book, Inside the Assassination Records Review Board, was inspired by the earlier work of David Lifton in his book, Best Evidence. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 97 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. You might have noticed that as we wandered around the myriad of testimony that was available surrounding the autopsy, well, if you were taking notes occasionally, you would find that some of the details that were being articulated at that very moment in a particular episode might not jive with something that was said in another episode by another character or cited from another source. That is, as it was particularly set forth for the timeline of the autopsy. Take, for example, the simple concept of when the autopsy actually was finally deemed complete that night and the forensic work by the doctors actually ceased. At what time did this really happen? This simple timestamp creates a hard stop and it pivots the action to the work that commenced by the Gawler Funeral Home personnel to put the president's body back together again. For years, it was almost considered to be gospel that the autopsy ended somewhere around midnight or around 1230 at the latest because so many of the witnesses had repeated just that. But sometimes 
you just have to go back to the Warren Commission testimony. And if you go back to Dr. Hume's testimony that he made on March 16, 1964, to the Warren Commission, well, here was the man who was actually doing the work, and he told us that the examination was concluded at approximately 11 o'clock on the night of November 22nd. He wasn't always telling the truth that day, but as far as what time it ended, perhaps he was. The point I am trying to make is that the timeline is everything here. Well, why is that? Well, because the autopsy timeline at the end of the day, just like the precision timing contained in the Zapruder film, lays out parameters under which everything might have occurred. Everything from when the decoy caskets were delivered to the morgue to when the actual body was delivered and consequently when the actual body alteration work was performed privately and before the general autopsy got underway. Let's start with why the 11 o'clock time asserted by Humes to be the time that the autopsy ended and why this time is so important. What it means is that the two FBI agents, Siebert and O'Neill, probably left about 11 o'clock p.m. right at the end of the autopsy. If that was the official time of the ending of the autopsy. You see, they headed over to the FBI labs at that point to begin conducting tests on some of the missile fragments that had been extracted that night. It also means that Dr. Humes likely completed his telephone conversations with Dr. Perry from Parkland by about 11.15 p.m. And that timeline is consistent with the timeline for the start of the call between Dr. Perry and Dr. Humes toward the end of the autopsy, a timeline that was set forth in earlier testimony that you heard and that was promulgated by Dr. Ebersol the radiologist that night who was so prominently figured into the events of the evening. Recall that Dr. Perry was the emergency room physician at Parkland who informed Dr. Humes that there was a bullet hole right in the spot where the tracheotomy had been performed. And just to state the obvious, as we all know, the official story is that the doctors at Bethesda learned sometime early the next day, on Saturday morning, about the bullet wound in the neck. But the truth is that Humes and Boswell and Fink learned about that wound beginning around 10.30 that night, based on their call with Dr. Perry. Obviously, there was a whole lot of perjury going on regarding the timing of when they found this information out. As we have stated in previous episodes, knowing this information prior to completion of the autopsy would have allowed them knowledge that should have prompted additional procedures that night when it was still possible to do that. Yet, they did not. We know that there was tremendous pressure to complete the autopsy, and we also know that there were likely nefarious forces with ulterior motives bearing down on the circumstances. And those nefarious forces had no interest in performing those additional procedures that night. And for those simple reasons, the timing of the call with Perry was conveniently repositioned in the timeline to Saturday morning rather than Friday night. It was all part of a much larger web of lies. And there was plenty of perjury to go around when Perry conveniently forgot what time that call took place. Can you imagine a surgeon at Parkland, a trauma doctor, forgetting the time of that call? 
No way. One can only speculate what was said in a private conversation to Perry about the importance of conveniently forgetting what time that call actually took place. Oh, well, that was a bit of a digression in some ways, but perhaps not, as this, again, all relates to the nefarious goings-on that night behind the scenes. The Three Gallers Funeral Home participants filed a tripartite document which sets forth their recollections that night, and in that document, they set forth the commencement and completion times of the funeral homework, which they said took place between 11.45 p.m., and 3.30 a.m. Doug Horn believes that Humes learned of the additional bullet wound on the body, that is the one in the anterior neck, from Dr. Perry somewhere between 11 o'clock and 11.15, and that would have been followed by an intense discussion of about 15 minutes duration between 11.15 and 11.30 p.m., during which a three-hit scenario on the body was considered instead of a two-hit scenario. There is even a likelihood that a bullet which entered the back of the skull near the hairline was probed, and this was recalled by funeral home member Tom Robinson, and that there was a path found that entered the back of the skull low on the cranium and exiting at the tracheotomy site. Horn speculates that photographs of this may even have been taken, but likely they would have been discarded after the three-hit scenario was abandoned less than 24 hours later, as the discussion ensued on how to account for the bullet wound at the tracheotomy site, and a new three-hit scenario was proclaimed, which, by the way, the two FBI agents never heard because they had already headed out to the FBI lab And that is exactly what Robert Lipsy witnessed and recounted to the HSCA staff, including a series of misleading photographs incorporating the low and the high man-made punctures in the temporarily rearranged scalp, which obscured the exit defect in the rear of the head. And these could have easily been taken within a 15-minute period between 1130 and 1145 that night on November 22, 1963. I know, I know, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Some of these things don't completely make sense, but we'll straighten them out when we go through the details of the timeline. We'll get to that soon enough. The important point is that this scenario makes it possible that the Gollers' funeral homework, which did commence by 1145, and provides that gap between the completion time of the autopsy, the time after the FBI agents left, time enough to adapt to the new information and invent a hypothetical explanation for a third wound to the body, the bullet wound in the throat seen by Dr. Perry. Of course, it was now apparent to the pathologist that any story or hypothesis that they came up with had to be consistent with the official story of a lone assassin. As I said, Siebert and O'Neill would have been headed to the FBI lab and then would have taken additional time afterwards to sit down and jointly draft the telex, which they apparently called into the Baltimore field office by telephone. And if those two agents left the morgue at 11 o'clock p.m., that makes it much easier to understand how a telex drafted by them at FBI headquarters could have been phoned into the Baltimore office, typed and transmitted from that site by 2 o'clock a.m., which was the documented time of the transmission. 
highlighting the fact that Siebert and O'Neill were not there is important because certain things did occur out of their presence, somewhat accounting for some of the discrepancies between what they heard and what actually transpired afterward. Now, let's turn to the slippery testimony of Dr. Humes and the likely point that we have mentioned earlier that he committed perjury during his testimony to the Warren Commission, and it starts with his testimony of when the president's body actually arrived at the morgue. In his testimony to the Warren Commission, Hume specifically stated that the president's body was received at 25 minutes before 8, an odd way to say it, or 7.35 p.m., and that the autopsy began at approximately 8 o'clock p.m. that evening. As we already know, the timeline and testimony of others refutes the idea that the body arrived at 7.35 p.m. Simply, it arrived approximately one hour earlier. His testimony deliberately created a deception of about one hour in the timeline, a deception of one hour related to the actual time that the body arrived at the morgue. It was a deception that was made because of what actually happened during that one-hour time frame. You may recall that John Stringer, who was the official autopsy photographer, told the ARRB in May of 1996 in his own deposition transcript that skull x-rays were taken almost immediately and that they had to develop them and bring them back to the morgue. Orne believes that those skull x-rays were not taken until after the clandestine post-mortem surgery of the head was completed. And on Horn's timeline, it puts those skull x-rays taking place between 7.15 and 7.30 p.m., allowing about 30 minutes for developing the five skull x-rays, which would have meant that they were returned to the morgue for a reading between about 7.45 and 8 o'clock p.m., just in time for Dr. Humes to call Dr. Fink and ask him to participate and allow Fink then time to arrive at just around 8.30 p.m. There is one more important character to introduce here now, and it's Robert Knutson, the White House photographer, who Horn believes took certain series of autopsy photos, and you'll hear more about that in the timeline when we introduce it. Horn believes that someone took autopsy photos that were taken immediately after the clandestine craniotomy, a procedure that was completed prior to the official start of the autopsy. Again, you'll hear more about that in the official timeline once we get started. It was a procedure which enlarged the head defect. Horn believes that certain pictures taken show the head brace and the Bethesda towel that were not present in later photographs taken by Stringer. Stringer's ARRB testimony indicates that there was a delay of at least one hour between the time when the body arrived and for this purpose, think 6.35 p.m., a delay in time before Stringer began taking photographs, and also that x-rays were also taken before he took photographs of President Kennedy. The 6.35 p.m. arrival, then, of the president's body at the morgue is consistent with Stringer's account of his beginning his duties after the ceremonial bronze casket opening at 8 o'clock p.m. Stringer's testimony contradicts what Humes told Specter and the Warren Commission about the time of the arrival of the body. Years later, after the Boyajian report and its timeline showing a definite 6.35 p.m. arrival of the casket was made public, and Stringer's testimony was also made public, that Humes would then finally be exposed and change that testimony as he discussed it with the ARRB. 
now with his lie to the Warren Commission about the arrival time of the body, finally exposed, Humes would, in testimony to the ARRB, well, he would now place the arrival at around 7. Now quoting a time that was much closer to the time that the newly discovered Boyajian report indicated, and also the timing revealed by then of Stringer's account, but also giving him some level of plausible denial that there wasn't enough time to perform such a clandestine procedure. That remaining 25-minute difference was critical, the time between 6.35 and 7. But regardless, all of the evidence was now available to refute the original accounting that Humes had given the Warren Commission. Was it an innocent faux pas by Humes, this missing hour? Horn doesn't think so. He believes it was a deliberate deception by Humes to obscure the one-hour time frame in which this most nefarious act took place. The craniotomy that was meant to obscure the bullet wounds to the president's head and eliminate as much as they could of any evidence that would suggest anything other than a lone gunman firing from the rear. Humes said that a series of both photographs and x-rays were taken during the first 25 minutes after the body arrived. However, Stringer recalled a delay of over an hour before they finally got to work. So you see, Stringer took no photographs until after 8 o'clock p.m. Floyd Reby, who was the photography student who took many photographs that night and was assisting Stringer, indicates that he arrived to join Stringer at around 8 o'clock p.m. that night, and his testimony also corroborates that work to begin taking photographs began around 8 o'clock p.m. as well. So again, the photos that were taken, likely taken during that 6.45 to 7.15 p.m. time frame, so again, there were photos taken, likely taken, during that 6.45 to 7.15 p.m. time frame, photos that so nefariously supported the work of nefarious forces. So with all of this in the backdrop, and some of it probably still fuzzy, let's review in detail Horn's timeline starting from the very beginning. At 6.35 p.m., a shipping casket with President Kennedy's body inside encased in a zippered rubberized body bag and nude with only the head wrapped in a sheet arrives at the morgue loading dock in a black Cadillac ambulance that is a hearse provided by the Gawler's funeral home. It is unclear whether the Gawlers picked up the president's body at Andrews Air Force Base and simply drove extremely fast in order to arrive at Bethesda prior to the Andrews motorcade, or whether JFK's body was helicoptered to the grounds of Bethesda and was introduced to the hearse after landing on the Bethesda grounds behind the hospital, that is, perhaps in the officer's club parking lot. But we do know the body did arrive at 6.35 p.m. because the Boyajian report, written on November 26, 1963, says it did. The two ambulance attendants who emerged from the front seat dressed in white smocks are Joe Hagen and Tom Robinson of Gawler's Funeral Home. There were numerous Secret Service agents there as well and accompanying the casket inside the hearse, and they are seen by Dennis David getting out of the vehicle. Dennis David and his working party of sailors carry the shipping casket into the morgue, anteroom, and then they are dismissed. Witnesses who definitely observe the arrival of the shipping casket and initially see it opened 
are Paul O'Connor, James Jenkins, John Stringer, Floyd Reby, Gerald Custer, Ed Reed, Captain John Stover, Dr. Humes, Dr. Boswell, and Navy Surgeon General Edward Kenny. Between 6.37 and 6.49 p.m., an initial inspection of the body is conducted in which the same head wound seen in Dallas that is an occipital parietal exit defect, a blowout in the right rear of the head, devoid of scalp and skull, is observed at Bethesda. Witnesses to this include Dr. Ebersol, Dr. Canada, and Tom Robinson. Autopsy technicians Paul O'Connor and James Jenkins and photographers Stringer and Reed are dismissed, probably before the head is initially unwrapped. They all see the shipping casket arrive, they see it opened, and they witness JFK's nude body with a sheet wrapped around the head, removed from a zippered body bag and placed on the examining table. Stringer claimed that he only saw a bronze casket in a body wrapped in sheets when testified before the ARRB, but Horn is confident that Stringer saw these things, and he is confident about that because Stringer's assistant, Floyd Reby, did see them, and he said so. And he believes that Stringer saw them too, but he chose not to recall a shipping casket or a body bag at his deposition to avoid being involved in an unpleasant controversy. Joe Hagan and Tom Robinson, who were not perceived as a threat since they were participants in the early arrival, are allowed to stay. Horn believes that someone else besides Stringer took the early photographs of the actual wounds, which are seen days after the autopsy by both Dennis David and Joe O'Donnell. Those photographs were likely taken by Robert Knutson. Knutson told his son that he rode to Bethesda in the Andrews motorcade. If that was true, and if he therefore did not arrive at the hospital until 6.55 p.m., then based upon Horn's timeline, Knutson actually could not have taken the very early initial photos showing the entrance wound in the upper right forehead, which Dennis David and Joe O'Donnell have recalled seeing. Someone else must have done it. Those early photos show an entrance wound in the upper right forehead. At 6.50 p.m., Humes, assisted by Boswell, commences the performance of a modified craniotomy by making a long, transverse, left-to-right incision in the scalp just behind the hairline. And by then, using a circular bone saw to cut into the frontal bone at the site of this incision, which is just behind the hairline in the top of the head, behind what a layperson would call the forehead. At this point, someone in the morgue objects to the presence of Custer and Reed, who are unaccountably still present, and they are summarily dismissed. Reed recalls this in his ARRB testimony. Roy Kellerman, who David Lifton has called the battalion commander on the ground for the medical cover-up, was not yet present, and he was not yet controlling access to the morgue since he was riding in the motorcade from Andrews Air Force Base. So this probably accounts for the mistakes that were made in the cover-up, namely allowing the x-ray technicians and the two morticians to witness post-mortem surgery on President Kennedy's skull. Between 6.53 and 6.55 p.m., the Andrews Air Force motorcade pulls up in front of Bethesda Naval Hospital. 
The Dallas casket, that heavy, ornate, bronze ceremonial viewing casket, is empty. But Jacqueline Kennedy does not realize this. The original intent of the conspirators seems to have been to reunite the president's body with the empty Dallas casket at Walter Reed Hospital. Walter Reed Hospital is co-located with the Army Forensic Institute of Pathology. Horn surmised that they then would have taken the Dallas casket with the body inside it once again to Bethesda. This plan was foiled by the president's widow who refused a helicopter ride back to the White House and instead insisted on remaining with the Dallas casket all the way to Bethesda Naval Hospital. In her loyalty, she wanted to remain with her husband's body until it reached the White House. This decision of hers, which no one could countermand, created a major problem for those in charge of the cover-up who had been planning to quietly reintroduce JFK's body into the Dallas casket at Walter Reed. It not only created unwanted witnesses to the multiple casket entries at Bethesda and to the broken chain of custody for the body, but there are still indicators in the documentary record today of this original plan to go to Walter Reed and the original intent of those managing the cover-up. LBJ's secretary on board Air Force One took notes that indicated that the body was going to Walter Reed. And there is an official United States Air Force Command history of Andrews Air Force Base that states that President Kennedy's body was transported to Walter Reed after Air Force One landed. But that doesn't mean that these things happened. Rather, these entries are a reflection of the original plans that were in place and known by others that night, up until the time that Jackie Kennedy upset the apple cart, upset the apple cart of those in charge of the cover-up by deciding to remain with the Dallas casket. Horn's 1997 ARRB interview with Dr. Dick Davis, who was the acting head of neuropathology at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, documents the fact that even though he was set up and prepared to conduct a craniotomy, at the Air Force Institute of Pathology, the body never arrived at the Walter Reed compound. At 6.56 p.m., Gerald Custer, on his way to an elevator that will take him upstairs to the fourth floor X-ray department, escorted by a Secret Service agent, sees Jackie Kennedy enter the Bethesda lobby. Dennis David, from a second-floor office, also cites the entry of the president's widow. Custer and Reed have not yet taken any x-rays. Years later, in 1979 and 1980, when interviewed by David Lifton, Custer correctly remembers seeing Jackie Kennedy enter the hospital after the president arrived, but incorrectly recalls that he had already taken some x-rays at this point, and that was probably because the technicians made so many trips upstairs that night to develop films. This mistake is probably understandable. 16 years after the fact. Between 6.56 and 7 o'clock p.m., Tom Robinson witnesses the doctors removing significant portions of the rear end top of the president's skull with a saw to gain access to the brain. And Robinson later recalls this vividly and matter-of-factly to the ARRB in 1996. 
Robinson also witnesses numerous bullet fragments removed from the brain, which he recalls for both the HSCA and the ARRB. Horn has concluded that Hume's surgically removed evidence of a bullet entry from a very high up location in the right forehead above the right eye, leaving evidence that this illicit post-mortem surgery in the form of an ugly bright red incision high in the right forehead was present as they begun the regular autopsy and which no one recalls seeing in Dallas at Parkland Hospital. Humes also removed significant portions of brain tissue from the forebrain to eliminate any evidence of a bullet track which would prove there was a shot from the front. He removed at least 10 bullet fragments from the brain, according to Tom Robinson, and at least four of them were large enough to warrant a receipt being prepared, as observed by Dennis David. A bullet may also have been removed from right behind the right ear, based on the FBI headquarters memo written that night of the autopsy and set forth by Alan Belmont to the number two in command at the FBI, Clyde Tolson. At 7.05 p.m., Robert Knutson takes a quick series of autopsy photos showing JFK's head supported by a metal head brace with a Bethesda Naval Hospital towel underneath the head brace, a towel which displayed a blue stripe. These photos, which constitute over half of the photos in the autopsy collection, are intended to misrepresent the results of the post-mortem surgery conducted by Humes as damage caused by an assassin's bullet, namely a large fictional exit defect in the right temporal parietal region. The intentional positioning of the president's head in the metal stirrup is intended to hide the original occipital defect in the rear of the skull and succeeds brilliantly in doing so. Immediately afterwards, the head brace is disassembled and the towel discarded and they are never seen again that night during the autopsy. At 7.07 p.m., the Gray Navy ambulance containing the empty Dallas casket after not moving outside the front of Bethesda Naval Hospital, not moving for 12 minutes, is now seen driving around to the morgue loading dock. Secret Service agent William Greer, the driver of the Gray Navy ambulance, and yes, also the driver of the presidential limousine in Dallas, follows Siebert and O'Neill of the FBI because they know where the morgue is located. Between 7.10 and 7.20 p.m., Custer and Reed, who were recalled from the fourth floor after an absence of only about 15 minutes, take a series of five skull x-rays depicting an enormous frontoparietal temporal occipital wound in the skull and then take them upstairs for developing, which takes about 30 minutes. At about 7.17 p.m., Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman, who had entered Bethesda through the front entrance as soon as the Andrews motorcade arrived, meets the Dallas casket at the morgue loading dock, and he, Greer, Siebert, and O'Neill remove it from the Navy ambulance and transport it to the morgue anteroom using a wheeled dolly, a common conveyance used to transport caskets. FBI agents Siebert and O'Neill, who do not know the Dallas casket is empty, and who also do not know that x-rays of the president's skull are being taken inside the morgue proper at that very moment, are denied entry to the morgue by Roy Kellerman, no doubt creating 
serious consternation on their part, since their mission was to stay with the body and collect all ballistics and firearms evidence, that is, bullets and bullet fragments that were removed from the body. They registered their emphatic objections about this treatment with Roy Kellerman and are nevertheless kept waiting, sequestered, until shortly after 8 o'clock p.m. The excuse they are given is that, quote, setup is going on inside the morgue and that this is the, quote, time of preparation for the autopsy. So they are led to believe that they are not really missing anything anyway. At 7.30 p.m., Joe Gawler, the owner of the funeral home, and John Van Hosen of Gawler's arrive, and they are kept waiting in the morgue anteroom. They do not understand why they have not been admitted, but notice that others are waiting in the anteroom also. They may have crossed paths at this point with Siebert and O'Neill. Somewhere in this general time frame, but with the exact time unknown, Tom Robinson witnesses the president's body removed from the morgue and is told that the autopsy is being moved to another location temporarily. His agitation about this was recalled to the HSCA staff 14 years later in 1977 when he told them that the body was taken and that the body never came. Unknown to him now that the clandestine surgery on the president's body has been completed and the photographs and x-rays documenting those altered wounds have been taken, JFK's body has been rewrapped to mimic its appearance when it left Parkland with a sheet around the body and another sheet around the head, reunited with the Dallas casket, and the bronze casket is being rushed outside to a Gray Navy ambulance. There were two in use that night, so that it can be found again by the Joint Service Casket Team, which has lost track of the president's body and is driving around the grounds of Bethesda in desperation, looking for the bronze casket. In the process of rapidly transporting the heavy bronze casket to a gray Navy ambulance, it is severely damaged, probably either dropped or run into a wall. One handle is broken off, and the shiny bronze finish on the viewing coffin is noticeably scratched and dented. I'll pause here and just say that we know one of the handles was hacked off with an axe in order to get it inside of Air Force One but that was probably not known to Horn at this moment. At any rate, all of this damage to the casket was not really that surprising since the casket and the president's remains together weighed over 570 pounds, and the persons transporting it, almost certainly Secret Service agents, were not accustomed to handling an object of this mass. United States Air Force Brigadier General Godfrey McHugh, President Kennedy's Air Force aide, did not notice the damage to the casket on Air Force One and saw it for the first time at 8 o'clock p.m. when he tried to help the Joint Service casket team carry the casket up the steps of the morgue loading dock. At about 7.50 p.m., X-ray technicians Gerald Custer and Ed Reed bring the five developed skull X-rays back to the morgue to be read by Humes, Boswell, and Ebersol. Following discussion of the skull X-rays with his colleagues, Humes calls Dr. Fink at his home at about 8 o'clock p.m., based on the Blumberg report. And Humes asks Fink to assist him with the autopsy on President Kennedy. Humes tells Fink that he already has a good set of head films. Custer and Reed are dismissed and sequestered so that they do not witness the entry of the Dallas casket 
at 8 o'clock p.m. At 7.55 p.m., the Joint Service Casket Team finds the bronze Dallas casket inside a Gray Navy ambulance sitting out in front of Bethesda Naval Hospital and escorts it to the morgue loading dock, where they perform their ceremonial function and prepare to take the Dallas casket into the morgue with all due solemnity. At 8 o'clock p.m., the casket team, supervised by Lieutenant Byrd from Fort Myer, performs its official function and takes the Dallas casket into the morgue, sitting it down next to an examination table. General Godfrey McHugh attempts to assist outside on the loading dock, briefly taking the place of Coast Guardsman George Barnum, one of the pallbearers. But McHugh had to quickly relinquish his grip because the casket is so heavy and because the morgue loading dock steps are too narrow. At 8.01 p.m., as soon as the casket lid is opened, the Joint Service casket team members begin to file out, and Roy Kellerman, the stage manager that night, admits Jim Siebert and Frank O'Neill to the party, and Joe Goller and John Van Hosen to the morgue for the first time. He also readmits Stringer, Reby, O'Connor, Jenkins, Custer, and Reed. O'Connor makes an official log entry and records the time he is readmitted, 8 o'clock, a time that he later incorrectly associates in his memory with the time of arrival of the shipping casket, which he had seen earlier at 6.35 p.m. Humes unwraps the head defect, which he previously expanded to five times its original size during the postmortem surgery, and the audience gasps with amazement, shock, and disbelief that any single bullet could be the cause of that kind of dramatic damage to the president's skull. Already in a highly anxious and nervous state of mind, Dr. Humes blurts out his infamous utterance that there had been surgery of the head area, namely in the top of the skull. It was a feeble attempt to defend himself and blame the damage to the skull to life-saving surgery performed by the physicians at Parkland Hospital. Siebert and O'Neill, not recognizing the true significance of this statement, nevertheless recognize that it is important, and they write it down in their notes. Paul O'Connor misinterprets the large amount of brain tissue removed by Dr. Humes during the clandestine surgery as evidence that there were no brains in the skull, that the cranium was empty, and that this was damage caused by a gunshot. Although he remained convinced that he was correct for the rest of his life, largely because he never had to perform a craniotomy himself, he was wrong. Ed Reed and Tom Robinson saw a modified craniotomy performed when Paul O'Connor, by definition, must have been absent from the morgue. Besides, the exit wound seen in Dallas was much too small to permit removal of a brain, or to account for the massive head defect and the degree of missing brain tissue that O'Connor consistently recalled. There were some things that were careless at that moment. Van Hosen noticed a black zippered plastic pouch inside the morgue after everyone had returned. The body bag from which the president had been removed shortly after 6.35 p.m. Presumably, the body bag was removed from sight shortly after 8 o'clock p.m. Both the body bag and the shipping casket could have been hidden away the rest of the evening in either the shower room or the chemical room 
or the storage room in the back of the morgue. Details. Details. At 8.05 p.m., following this initial public examination of the president's body before a large morgue audience, which causes Humes to later characterize the start of the autopsy as about 8 o'clock, most people in the morgue are temporarily dismissed while photos and x-rays are taken. The autopsy x-rays taken at this time are of the torso, not the skull, and it's prior to the Y incision, and therefore prior to the removal of any organs. Stringer and Reby begin taking photographs, a process that goes on continuously for three hours. None of their photographs will ever be seen by them after processing, and none of them will be placed in the National Archives. At 8.15 p.m., the Y incision is made on the body, and this event is recorded as the first incision by Siebert and O'Neill, who are completely unaware of the prior clandestine surgery. Between 8.16 and 8.29 p.m., Humes and Boswell remove what is left of the brain without performing a normal craniotomy. They only have to extend some incisions that they had already previously made in the scalp, which they misrepresent as lacerations. And they snip a very small amount of bone in one or two places in the badly damaged cranium to do so. The president's cranium is so badly damaged by this time, severely fractured by multiple gunshot wounds and partially missing due to gunshot blast and post-mortem surgery, that it is literally falling apart. The entire scalp is mobile, and the shape of the skull is quite malleable. Tom Robinson, Gerald Custer, Humes, and Boswell described this condition dramatically in subsequent years. At about 8.30 p.m., Dr. Pierre Fink arrives and observes that President Kennedy's brain, lungs, and heart have already been removed. Early in the autopsy, at some point, Boswell makes his famous sketch of the damage to the top of the skull, in which he intentionally misrepresents damage caused by Dr. Hume's illicit post-mortem surgery, characterizing it as, quote, damage caused by the assassin's bullet. Then, in an exactly unknown time moment, as the evening progresses, in response to Dr. Fink's unremitting search for evidence in the skull, of a bullet's entry and exit. Roy Kellerman reintroduces into the morgue three fragments of skull that had previously been removed during the post-mortem surgery by Dr. Humes prior to the start of the autopsy. The middle sized of the three fragments of skull bone completes the circumference of the entry wound in the posterior skull. And the largest of the three fragments, measuring about six and a half by 10 centimeters, contains a semicircular beveled notch in the outer table of the skull, which is misrepresented by Humes and Boswell to Fink as representing the exit wound in the right parietal region. Roy Kellerman, thinking he should do damage control to correct Humes' panicky oral utterance about surgery of the head area earlier that evening, publicly instructs Dr. Humes that the largest of the three fragments was removed from the president's skull at the Dallas hospital. And FBI agents Siebert and O'Neill dutifully record these statements in their notes. Humes becomes increasingly frustrated that he cannot find a bullet in the president's body to correspond with the entry wound in the back 
at the level of the third thoracic vertebrae. T3. He has already announced that the shallow backbone has a severe downward trajectory of about 45 to 60 degrees, but he's mystified because there is no bullet in the body. After Siebert makes a telephone call to the FBI, Humes learns from the FBI agents that a bullet was found on a stretcher at Parkland Hospital, and he assumes that the stretcher bullet in Dallas was dislodged from the president's back by external cardiac massage administered during the attempt to save JFK's life. We know, especially based on things said by Dr. Weck, that the idea of a bullet dislodging from the rear of the president's back like that, virtually impossible. Somewhere between 10.45 and 11 o'clock p.m., James Humes, chief prosector, makes a grand public statement for the benefit of the FBI and the morgue audience that the pattern was now clear. President Kennedy was killed by two shots from behind. One entered his back and created a very shallow wound and was later pushed out by external cardiac massage. And the other entered low in the back of his skull and exited from the right front of his skull, as evidenced by the external beveling on the large skull bone fragment. At about 11 o'clock p.m., FBI agents Siebert and O'Neill depart en route to the FBI laboratory in downtown Washington, D.C. They have with them two very tiny bullet fragments, which Humes removed from the brain tissue in the extreme forward portions of JFK's skull. They are 1 by 3 millimeters and 2 by 7 millimeters in size. Siebert and O'Neill are unaware of the vial of approximately 10 small metal fragments from the president's skull that Tom Robinson had seen earlier in the evening, or the four larger bullet fragments that Dennis David had seen earlier that evening as he prepared a receipt for them at the request of the Secret Service. Dennis David told David Lifton about these four fragments and the receipt in 1979 and repeated the account to the ARRB in 1997. Stringer and Reby break down their equipment and leave the morgue. Stringer in 1996 had a vague recollection that someone in the morgue did call Dallas during the autopsy because this telephone call was transpiring while Stringer and Reby were still in the morgue disassembling their gear. At about 11.05, there was telephonic contact established between Humes and Dr. Perry in Dallas, probably in an attempt by Humes to ask if Perry knew anything about the stretcher bullet and whether it came from the body of the president. The call was probably initiated by a Secret Service agent and then taken by Humes after Perry was on the phone. Unexpectedly, Humes became aware by talking to Perry that there was a bullet wound in the anterior neck, in the throat, a wound that had all the appearances in Dallas of a wound of entry. Prior to this, he had not considered the gaping wound in the throat to be anything more than a sloppy tracheotomy. It is this phone call that turned the autopsy on its head and forced Humes to come up with a three-shot scenario that accounted for three bullets hitting the body from behind, of course, and abandoned the two-shot scenario publicly dictated before the FBI prior to the departure of Siebert and O'Neill. 
It is at this point that Hume's superiors intervene, probably in a rather heavy-handed way, and remind him that an entrance wound in the throat is unacceptable. And it is his job to suppress evidence of bullet wounds inflicted from in front of the limousine, if he is to help hide the fact that there was an international communist conspiracy and thereby help prevent World War III. In this manner, the fraudulent explanation, which we now know as the Lipsy bullet number two, is invented, postulating that a bullet entering extremely low in the back of the head exited from the front of the throat, and that Dr. Perry later performed a rather sloppy tracheostomy at the site of this exit wound in the throat, obliterating it in the process. Richard Lipsy, the aide to General Wheel, who was the commanding officer of the Military District of Washington, overhears this new three-hit scenario expounded upon by Humes and his superiors and commits it to memory. Roy Kellerman initially became so upset about Hume's discovery of the throat wound, evidence of a shot from the front, that Dr. Boswell recalled to the HSCA staff 14 years later that the pathologist had gotten themselves in Dutch with the Secret Service over the throat wound. This is an interesting side note that Kellerman had even invented fabrications about the president's speech and gestures during the shooting in an apparent attempt to persuade the FBI that JFK did not have a bullet wound in his throat and that he only had one in his back. Boswell performed his part in the cover-up in ensuing years by recalling for both the HSCA and the ARRB that the pathologist did indeed know that there was an exit wound in the throat at the autopsy. One indication of the cover-up's poor management is that Humes and Fink, in contrast, always insisted that the conclusions that there was an exit wound in the throat was an inference not reached until mid-morning on Saturday, after the Saturday call from Humes to Perry. Between 11.30 and 11.45, Robert Knudsen is brought back to the morgue by Roy Kellerman to take the series of misleading photographs that we are all so familiar with today, showing the back of the head apparently intact, a high back wound in the posterior thorax, and two punctures in the scalp in the back of the skull, a high red spot and a low white one, actually a pink spot. Unfortunately for the cover-up, he also photographs a close-up shot of a semicircular notch in the bone in the posterior skull, which is actually evidence of a bullet's exit in the back of the head. It is this photo that would later be carelessly and mistakenly included in the official collection without the foreknowledge of Dr. Humes or the other pathologists, which explains why they did not mention this damage in the autopsy report and why Humes denied that such damage existed in his Warren Commission testimony. At about 11.45 p.m. and continuing through about 3.30 a.m., the Gawler's team of Joe Hagan, Ed Strobel, Tom Robinson, and Joe Van Hosen performed its assigned tasks, first embalming the body arteriorally, then reconstructing the torso and the skull, and finally applying restorative art to the president's head and face and dressing the body. 
Late in this process, Robert Knutson is ordered to take a series of sanitized post-mortem images of the cleaned-up body in the event they are needed for public relations purposes. One of these photos documents that there was still an occipital defect in the back of the head. Even after the Gawler's team finished its work, another image unaccountably recorded an intact brain not belonging to President Kennedy outside of his body alongside the restored, reconstructed head and torso. These images were never placed in the official autopsy collection, but Sandra Spencer, the ARRB's most credible deposition witness, remembered making prints of them for distribution and so testified to that effect to the ARRB in 1997. At about 3.45 a.m., the work on the president was finished. The Kennedy entourage views the remains before Joe Hagan closes the new mahogany casket procured by Gawlers to replace the damaged bronze Dallas coffin. At 3.56 a.m., President Kennedy's body and his widow depart Bethesda Naval Hospital for the White House in a Gray Navy ambulance. Humes, Boswell, and Fink, who have remained all night long while Gawlers performed its work, no doubt discussing the content that will go into the draft autopsy report, do not leave until the entire Kennedy party and the president's body depart Bethesda. Humes leaves with the three-hit scenario later recounted to the HSCA by Richard Lipsy, firmly in his mind, and goes home to type the first draft of the autopsy report. Well, there you have it. Horn's timeline, and it was created as his best attempt to reconcile what he knew then at the time he wrote it, starting with the president's body arriving at Bethesda at 6.35 p.m. and ending at the time that the autopsy really concluded at 11 o'clock. It includes a new understanding about how the autopsy photos and the x-rays were created and what is now known about the changing autopsy conclusions that happened that night, and through the next day on Saturday. It is a synthesis of the best efforts of David Lifton, the HSCA, the ARRB, David Mantic, two generations of JFK researchers, and of course Horn himself. A synthesis to make sense out of what previously seemed a hopelessly conflicted record. There's no guarantee that everything that Horn postulated in the timeline that I've just articulated, whether it's really and truly the simplest explanation, but that's what Horn thinks. It's a way to elegantly reconcile all of the currently available accounts with all the previously known conflicts in the record, while simultaneously comporting with all of the new evidence and analysis that Horn himself lays out in his books. Horn himself will tell you that as new evidence is gathered and analyzed, it is certainly possible that some of the elements of this timeline may require modification. But he devoted 12 years of thought and careful study that went into the reinterpretation of this timeline. And it's his opinion, and he truly does believe, that what you just heard is as much as we can possibly know about the true events at the Bethesda morgue that happened that night on November 22nd. 1963. Thank you for listening to episode 97 of 
JFK, The Enduring Secret.
Thank you for listening to episode 98 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.